Tonight, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to speak about compassion and wisdom. A lot of the emphasis in this particular style of practice is on the uh, development of wisdom, on the uncovering of the nature of things as they really are. And sometimes questions come up, both in interviews, in our hearts, in our minds, sort of, well, what's the point of it? When we come to the place of emptiness, where all things arise and pass, when we emphasize so much in our practice that we're not here to achieve any particular state of heart or mind, we're not here to change anything, that it really doesn't matter what's happening. And the, <laughs> the question comes up, well, I didn't come here to stay the same, really. So what, what are we doing this for? <laughs> a little facetious. Okay, I'm being a little facetious. But the question does come up in that way. It's, it's easy at times to forget that the Buddha's teaching is comprised of the two wings. A bird has two wings to fly, that of great wisdom and great compassion. So I want to speak a little bit tonight about how they come together with the emphasis more on compassion. It's just really an introduction. The wisdom of emptiness, of no separate self, of impermanence, that there's nothing to cling to. This experience of the liberation of non-clinging is really, in some ways, the crux of what we speak about, of what our practice is about. And in that, in a moment of that experience, it can be easy to really more moments after that experience, in thinking about it, or thinking ahead to what's it going to be like in my daily life, the questions come up about what about the world of action? How does this wisdom of emptiness, this freedom of non-reactivity, how does that manifest in the world of choice, in the world of interrelationship with other beings, in the world where we have decisions to make and actions to take. How does wisdom translate? And it's here that the second wing of compassion comes into flower, that we need to really see and understand the importance of this. Because the natural expression of wisdom is in love and compassion. It's almost not something we have to crank up, but in a moment of knowing things as they are, really deeply, the natural manifestation of that is love and compassion. Sometimes one side is highlighted, sometimes another in our experience, but a really rich, developed wisdom will have both aspects. And we can see in ourselves times when the uh, impermanence, when the emptiness, when the no-self is really strong. And there can be a real peace, a loveliness in that. 
a sense of freedom, but it can also feel somewhat cool, a bit removed, not indifferent, but you could see how it could go in that direction. And then on the other side, there's times when we're just practicing karuna, compassion, or metta, loving kindness, and a lot of the questions that come up around that are, well, this, this is nice, you know, when it's working, okay. This is nice. It feels lovely. It's a really good mental state, which seems to be fostering the sense of self. Or metta is just seeing the nice side of things, you know. And I've had people actually say to me that they are resistant to the idea of metta because to them it gives um, the sense of being a wimp. You know, you just love everything, you accept everything, you forgive everything, and you just let people walk all over you. So, I mean, we can see how both of these are exaggerated, but how a true, deep, rich freedom of heart and mind encompasses both. One place that wisdom or understanding and compassion or metta come together is in this aspect of mind, the mental factor of intention. I really love the way the Buddha put these things together. You know, he's such an incredible mind. So when we're sitting, when we're walking, when we're here on retreat and to a great extent insulated from having to make any huge decisions, certainly any life decisions. We wish, we beg you not to make any life decisions while you're here. Then you can sit and walk and watch every state of mind and heart come and go and really see that none of it is who you are. And a moment of aversion, a moment of love, a moment of reactivity, a moment of boredom, a moment of wisdom, are all empty. They can all come and go, and the the nature, the vivid, awake nature of mind doesn't care, you know? Awareness doesn't really care what's arising within it. It's untouched, it's unstained, and we can experience that. But where these states of heart and mind where the way we understand reality, ourselves, the world, does begin to matter, so to speak, where it does begin to have an effect, is when these states of heart and mind become the factors that give rise to intention. So, as you know, we've spoken of intention. It's this... uh, inclination of mind, you could say, that gives rise to action, that gives rise to speech. It often manifests as a thought, but not always. That little about to, you know, that we've been talking about through the retreat, that you've been noticing and experimenting with in your sittings and walkings. Intention, of course, doesn't arise without conditioning. It's conditioned by the previous moments and by whatever state of heart and mind is accompanying it. And this is where 
the state of heart and mind that's giving rise to intention does begin to matter. When the Buddha speaks of karma, wholesome and unwholesome karma, now the word karma translates just as action. And as we've said, the seed, the heart, the strength of all action is not in how it looks or the result that comes from the action or the speech, but it's completely in the intention that gives rise to that action. That's why we give so much emphasis to beginning to be able to even notice that there's an intention at all before an action, and then noticing what actually is the nature of that intention, what states of heart and mind are giving rise to that intention. So this volition, this impulse, is the crux of what is creating wholesome or unwholesome karma, actions, results in our own lives and in the lives of others with whom we come into contact. So, for example, the same action that from the outside might look the same could be motivated with many different intentions. And us, we looking on from the outside, can never really know uh, what somebody else's intention is unless we can have developed the psychic power of mind reading, which some people think teachers have developed that power. But once when I was in, the, in Thailand, I was staying in a monastery that a lot of Western monks would come through. It was in Bangkok to get their visas. And a lot would come from this monastery, a forest monastery in northeastern Thailand, and they were convinced that the Ajahn could read their every thought, even when they were in Bangkok. And it was really interesting, because they were so paranoid about it. It wasn't like, oh, he can read my mind, so I'll have perfect sila. I mean, they did that, but it was, it was with this total paranoia. It was very interesting. So anyway, from the outside, though, we normal worldlings cannot read each other's minds. But what's, what we can do is look in our own mind and heart and see what is the intention giving rise to an action. And it's a different way of looking at our activities from that we're normally used to in our, in our daily life. You know, we tend to judge an activity by the results, Was it a good thing to do? It was if it got the results that we wanted, or if we came off looking good, or if people feel good, or whatever. But you could do something with a really uh, clear intention that doesn't turn out the way you want. And in in this aspect of karma, that's not what matters. It's the intention. So if you get up now and start coughing and run out of the hall, There could be numerous intentions that give rise to that. It could be one of, you know, total terror. That you look like a fool and you have to get out of here. People are going to hate you. It could be real compassion, just really feeling like, oh, I might be bothering people. I might upset the talk and so you leave. It might be self-consciousness. It might be anger. It might be relief that you can get out of here. It could be a lot of different things. And the action looks exactly the same. 
So knowing the importance of intention, seeing how the Buddha placed this actually in the second step of the Eightfold Path, you see how important it is. The first stage, you know, of the Eightfold Path is right understanding or wise understanding. The beginning of the path, how we understand ourselves, how we understand the world, which of course is deepening and changing throughout our whole practice. But we begin with how we understand things, how we understand the world. And that leads into the second step, which is variously translated as wise thought or right thought or right intention, thought or intention. How we understand ourselves in the world gives rise to how we think about things, our intentions that lead to the third, fourth, and fifth stages of the path, which are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So it's right at this crux of intention that wisdom, understanding, intersects with all the choices, all the actions, all the ways that we as active, connected human beings are and act in the world. Okay. So then when the Buddha spoke about right thought as this second stage of the path, or right intention, he was very clear about what the three so-called right intentions are. And the point that I really want to make clearly tonight is that these right intentions arise naturally through our understanding, through our wisdom that arises from mindfulness. It's not like some fluke that happens simply from paying attention. So the three right thoughts or right intentions the Buddha spoke of are that of renunciation or generosity, counteracting the tendency to greed, meta-friendliness, counteracting the tendency to ill will, and compassion, which arises out of clear seeing and counteracts the habit of cruelty. And so I want to speak tonight about this way of looking at compassion, that it is the natural manifestation of a heart and mind of understanding. It's much more the manifestation of who we really are than all these kalesas we talk about so ceaselessly that we've made such friends with, that we feel so much at home with, greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's time for us to really recognize that compassion and loving kindness and generosity are our true home. That that is really, these are really the intentions that arise out of clear seeing. And we can begin to feel more at home with these, recognize these, rest in these, and not think it's some mistake when they happen to arise in our experience. (laughs) It's true 
that the seed of intention ultimately flowers, you know, or as uh, Ruth Dennison describes karma, you don't get away with nothing at some point. And we can see that, you can see it in the world, God knows, you know, in politics with all the rhetoric, well, because we just had the election, you guys are really lucky, you haven't had to listen to all this (laughs) stuff for a month. Just rhetoric, 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 and, you know, I really think a lot of the politicians believe what they say about wanting to help the country and kindness to all beings and stuff, and But when we see where the actions actually lead, at some point, it's quite obvious what intentions are actually guiding decisions and behavior. You know, I don't want to just dump on the politicians. It's not like they're the only ones on this planet. But uh, friends, good friends who do a lot of environmental work will, will talk often about starting with with really clear intentions of caring for the planet and running into so much suffering and so much delusion and so much greed that the motivation naturally turns to frustration and anger. And it may, they may continue to act with great energy and caring and the actions seem good in themselves, but because the intention starts turning to anger, the people themselves, it's as if the anger begins to eat them up, you know, and in this way, an intention, even if the actions are for the good, the intention will flower, you know, we can't really hide from it. So what we do here, and this is what I mean by let's not just pick out the politicians, is we, we, we look in ourselves. Someone said to me in a retreat uh, last year, I think, during one of the periods when Bosnia was really strong in the news, and it's a valid question, it was a question really, you know, what good are we doing here? Sitting here, watching our minds, our thoughts, our emotions come and go, the breath come and go, cultivating thoughts of goodwill and compassion, you know, just sitting here safe and secure. What good is this doing anybody when people in Bosnia are killing each other? And in the past, I would have thought my answer was a nice rationalization. I really believe it's true now as a start, as a start, that to begin with, what we're doing is very powerful because what we're bringing all our care, our honesty, our compassion to ourselves to look with great honesty at why we're doing what we're doing just in our little actions day to day here. And we discover both great wisdom, great compassion, great love, and we do run into our old friends, the torments of mind from time to time. And we see when we look deeply, there's a level on which I'm not really any different from somebody in Bosnia or Rwanda or so who really loses it and kills somebody. I mean, how many of us have had really serious, murderous fantasies here?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.